Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we look at Disney's centenary. Not just Bambi, I was also traumatized by Cinderella when I was a kid, so I may have mixed feelings about Disney. Plus, the top songs in India. I now understand your fascination with Indian music, and I have to say that this was a particularly interesting top five. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And we start the show talking about Disney. Children and adults alike will be thrilled to learn that Mickey Mouse, Minnie and Donald Duck are turning triple digits this year. That's right. Walt Disney will celebrate its 100th anniversary in October, but the company is kick-starting the festivities today at the Disneyland Resort in California. As Disney turns 100, its business is on a roller coaster ride. From the launch of various Magical Kingdom theme parks around the world to the rise of its flagship streaming service, Disney+. Plus. So what's in store for the company going forward? Well, Bloomberg's Ewan Potts filed this report. When you wish upon a star, make no difference who you it's a big birthday for the world's biggest entertainment company, but as Disney turns 100, the business faces challenges to many of its legacy divisions, and it has a fight on its hands in the battleground that is the TV streaming market. Well, first, the good news. The company's American theme parks have soared back to life after the pandemic shutdowns, generating record profits. Its broadcast and cable television networks continue to rake in billions of dollars a year, but in a declining market. And in streaming, the medium of the future Disney Plus has racked up more subscriptions than anyone else last year, overtaking market leader Netflix. While that TV division broadcasts and cable TV continuing to contribute the biggest share of Disney's profits. But conventional TV, and particularly cable TV, is an industry in long-term decline. Even before the cost of living started rocketing, Americans were already cutting the cord, swapping pricey cable packages for cheaper streaming services. According to research by Nielsen, Americans now spend more time streaming TV than watching cable. And what about all those movies? Well, Disney still rules the box office, scoring four of the ten highest-grossing films of 2022, including the sequel to Avatar, the most lucrative movie ever. But cinema is a long way from recovering from the pandemic, and some in the industry speculate that we will never return to our old movie theatre habits. The big bet, the place that everyone wants to be, is streaming. Well, Disney Plus made a stunning debut in 2019, signing up 10 million American households on its launch day. That bulging back catalogue really working its magic. Its debut in Europe in 2020, well, that was perfectly timed, coinciding with the first COVID lockdowns, adding millions more bored-at-home subscribers for Disney. By the end of last year, that number had reached 164 million. And if you count not just Disney+, Plus, but also Hulu and sports network ESPN, that adds up to more subscribers than anyone else. So that is all good news, right? Well, no. Disney's streaming division is bleeding cash, still losing more than $1 billion every three months. In the streaming fight, Apple and Amazon, both among the world's five most valuable companies, and both new to the TV game have been splashing the cash. 
and that is raising costs for everyone. Hollywood's biggest players have ramped up their combined content spending by 50% just since 2019. And Disney's offer is also relatively cheap, with the average subscriber in North America shelling out little more than $6 a month on their package. And whilst streaming is relatively new, the worry is that it may have already gone X-growth. Almost 80% of people in the US already pay for at least one streaming service. And both Netflix and Disney Plus have now stopped adding customers in the American market. There is also the minor issue of personnel. In November, the company sacked its chief executive, Bob Chapek, who took over in early 2020 and had a controversial tenure. In his place, Disney turned back to the previous Bob, Bob Iger, who cut short his retirement. He led Disney for a successful decade and a half. The board has given him two years to turn things around. And none of this takes place in a vacuum. Activist investor Nelson Peltz is breathing down Mickey's neck. He has a $900 million stake and is pushing hard for change at the Magic Kingdom. As Disney enters its second century, I think it's fair to say that running the world's biggest entertainment company is going to be anything but child's play. We're listening to that was Scott Lucas, adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at the University College Dublin, uh, and a man, Scott, who was once traumatised by Bambi. Yeah, not just Bambi, I was also traumatised by Cinderella when I was a kid. So I may have mixed feelings about Disney, especially because I later realised, much later on, when I rewatched the Crow scene from Dumbo, man, this is, this is really dodgy in terms of its representation of, of black Americans. Um, in other words, Disney could bring enchantment, could bring wonder, uh, arguably still does. But if you rewatch a lot of the cartoons, there's also a darker side to it, both in some of the themes it explored. And then a darker side, which perhaps, uh, given the complications, let's just put it that way, in terms of American culture in which it acted, sometimes it was a little bit suspect in terms of the way it represented certain folks. So tell us a little bit about where th- how they managed to change this because we we do know that there is a you know the narrative of the way that women are represented the way that ethnic minorities and, and sort of all every, every element of diversity disney is sort of bending over backwards to make sure that this is all represented when did the change happen well it, it happens in different ways in different phases so for example you can no longer find the song of the south uh, which at the time, back in America, and, you know, I can remember watching it when I was a boy, was a huge film, uh, you know, about Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit, because Song of the South, you know, owes a lot of its narrative and its presentation to the minstrel shows, the blackface shows um, from early American history. Uh, you have got the crow scene, which I just talked about, which has been cut out of Dumbo. But then on a wider scale, what you have is, for example, Disney, especially remembering that it's no longer just an American company, it's a global company, trying to present a sort of diversity in its films. So you'll see, you know, empowered women figures. You think about Mulan, for example, uh, where it tries to break away simply from presenting, as it were, the stereotype of, you know, the Cinderella who's always oppressed and then winds up getting her man in the end. Uh, It has tried to represent, as it were, different racial settings and different ethnic settings. Uh, Again, you know, you have Disney films which are set um, uh, in China, for example. At, at that point, however, you still got to remember that that cartoons often function at a fairly basic level of drawing up images and caricatures. And so 
you know, when you think about what a mermaid looks like, right? You go back to the Little Mermaid with Disney. When you think, go back to some of the images of just the princesses. Yeah, Disney at its same time in trying to be diverse still draws upon a legacy of images about women, about minorities that we still have to wrestle with in the 21st century. Tell us a little bit more about Walt Disney the man. I mean, much has been made about his rather complicated views, dare I say. The the fact was that it, there's often a sort of a, a loud anti-communist narrative, you know, conspiracy theories about connections to uh, the McCarthy um, witch trials. And and the fact is that Disney himself was, was, not necess- was not a nice man, was he? No, I mean, some people loved him, some people were devoted to him, but a lot of folks realized, you know, to be unacademic, he was a pain in the backside. You know, he, he was very driven as a taskmaster. Um, he would fire people on the spot. Um, and that led to, I, I think, some very dodgy uh, activity on Disney's part. Because when the Disney employees wanted to form a union, they wanted to protect their labor rights, uh, Disney quashed that ruthlessly. And then he hooked up with a new outfit called the Motion Picture Alliance, which was formed in 1941. And under the pretense of being the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, uh, this was a fiercely uh, anti-union organization, which used the Red Scare uh, to pursue the blacklist in Hollywood. And although Disney himself was not anti-Semitic in his views, according to those who knew him, there were a number of people who were anti-Semitic on the Motion Picture Alliance, uh, thus feeding into the idea that you know the Jews who controlled Hollywood were left-wing. So Disney ran with some fairly dodgy company at times. And now from the Foreign Desk Explainer, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been finding as many reasons as he can to prevent Sweden from being accepted into NATO. Andrew Muller explains why and asks when push comes to shove, will Turkey really block Sweden's bid? The list of miscalculations made by Russian President Vladimir Putin about the consequences of his invasion of Ukraine is long. But one of the more grievous, at least from Moscow's perspective, was that a war launched at least in part to arrest the enlargement of NATO had the effect of swelling NATO's numbers. In the early months of the war, Sweden and Finland, spooked by Russia's rampage, announced that they would end decades of tiptoeing along the fence and apply to join the alliance. The accession protocols were signed at last July's NATO summit in Madrid. After invitation, uh, we need the ratification process in 30 parliaments. That always takes some time. But I expect also that to go rather quickly because uh, allies are uh, ready to try to Uh, make that ratification process happen as quickly as possible. But Sweden and Finland are not members yet, and this week further doubt has been sown that Sweden, at least, ever will be. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has said that Sweden should not expect Turkey's support. You will note that he has not explicitly said it will not be forthcoming, an ambiguity to which we shall return. Under NATO's rules, all 30 members of the alliance have to formally ratify new applications, and two NATO members have not, Turkey and Hungary. 
Hungary's eventual agreement has already been signalled. Last November, Prime Minister Viktor Orban announced that his government would ratify Sweden and Finland's membership early this year, rather suggesting that Orban had been briskly reminded that his country is barely bigger by population than London, has a military that would be comfortably outgunned by Singapore, that everyone's patience with Orban's tedious grandstanding was wearing perilously thin, and that now would be a good time to get with the programme. With Turkey, it isn't so easy. Turkey is a colossally important member of NATO. In terms of manpower, Turkey fields NATO's second largest military after the United States. Geographically, Turkey is NATO's bulwark against the Middle East, bordering Syria, Iraq and Iran, and is the gatekeeper of the Black Sea. So when the president of Turkey harumphs, and for President Erdogan, harumphing has been the recurrent motif of his diplomacy, the rest of NATO is obliged to listen, or at least wearily enact the rituals and gestures attendant upon pretending it is listening. Erdogan has been harumphing in Stockholm's direction since Sweden applied to NATO, aggrieved that Sweden is too soft for his liking on Kurdish opponents of his who live there. Erdogan's latest vault onto his high horse has been prompted by a couple of recent indecorous demonstrations in Sweden. Earlier this month, Kurdish protesters in Stockholm hung an effigy of Erdogan from a lamppost, a stunt which was condemned by Swedish leaders, who also rather ingeniously tried to spin it as a bid to undermine Sweden's NATO application, a gambit with which Erdogan was apparently unimpressed. And on Saturday, Rasmus Paludan, leader of Denmark's far-right clue-in-the-name party Hardline, though also a Swedish citizen, burned a copy of the Koran outside Turkey's embassy in Stockholm. While it is tempting to suggest that the correct response from Sweden's authorities would have been to tell Paludan that they were not going to furnish his protest with police protection and invited him to take his chances, this would obviously not have been conducive to public order, and so police were duly provided, which seems to have further inflamed Erdogan's already fervid dudgeon. It is very obvious that those who allow such blasphemy in front of our embassy no longer expect our support for the NATO membership. Rasmus Paludan is, of course, a tiresome, attention-seeking jackass. As such, the truly statesmanlike move from Erdogan would have been to feign complete indifference to his discourtesy. But clowns like Paludan and demagogues like Erdogan knowingly participate in a symbiotic relationship in which each thrives off the other. Reactionaries gonna react... And Erdogan took the bait, but only because he believed it would nourish him. Turkey votes in a parliamentary and presidential election in May, and Erdogan can scarcely campaign on his economic record. Turkey's inflation is so rampant that Erdogan hailed December's year-on-year -year figure of a mere 64.2% as a significant improvement. Last year alone, according to the best guesses of one Turkish trade association, roughly 85,000 small businesses closed. 
though Erdogan has taken the elementary precaution of having at least one possible opponent hauled before court on an altogether ridiculous pretext. Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu currently appealing against a 31-month sentence for describing election officials as idiots. He faces a struggle on the domestic front. So a foreign antagonist suits Erdogan nicely, even if it's no small project to manufacture a convincing bogeyman from Sweden, which imposes itself on the world stage largely through solid furniture, stolid family vehicles and somewhat antiseptic pop music, and has barely fired a shot in anger since a minor rumpus with Norway in 1814. But such is the ironic essence of the nationalist strongman. Their pitch is always, essentially, that their country, however mighty and glorious, is in fact vulnerable and threatened. Erdogan's market for this moonshine is Turkey's equivalent of those Russians who believe themselves menaced by Ukraine, or Americans who fear Mexico. And beyond the election, should he win it, Erdogan would like to see Turkey readmitted to the United States F-35 program, from which it was ejected in 2019 after buying missiles from Russia. So as to the big question, would Turkey really, push meets shove, stop Sweden from joining NATO? The likely answer is no, but we may be a while yet from hearing it definitively. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller. You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We go to my home country now. We look at Brazil's kind of strange tradition of giving kids wacky names. But why the name Samba was not accepted? Let's find out why and hear from our panelists from the Monaco Daily. Brazilians are very creative when it comes to names. It's common to see people with names like Mozart or even Valdisney which is some sort of tribute to the late Walt Disney. Walt Disney. Get it? Unlike many countries, our registry offices are quite flexible when it comes to names. And you know what? Many Brazilians might disagree with me, but I really don't mind. It's part of our culture in a way. It's not boring. Just look at the names of a Brazilian football team anytime. Always with excellent nicknames or tribute names like the great Socrates in the 80s. Interestingly enough, even among the invaders of the Brazilian Congress earlier this year, we can find some crazy names. There was even a Dieter Marx. It's all a bit mad, really. So it's with surprise that I read the news that renowned Brazilian singer Seu Jorge decided to name his son Samba. But the decision was rejected by São Paulo's registry office. They said it was an unusual name. I mean, come on. First of all, Samba is a beautiful name. A tribute to the beautiful music genre that Brazil is known for. And now our registry offices have allowed 188 Hitlers currently living in Brazil. So why not Samba? Yes, I do understand that it's good to be flexible, but a rejection of a few names might be in the best interest of a child. Hitler, for example. But Brazil would be so much more boring if we only had a pre-made list of names that are allowed. As for my kid in the future, although I don't mind a bit of samba, I might go for electro. Dancing, dancing, do the real for Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. 
188 Hitlers uh, in Brazil uh, is, is, is something we've learned there. I, I was many years ago before the, the particular trip went somewhat off schedule due to meet a, a Cameroonian politician whose first name was Hitler. And I, I, had, I had intended to ask him how that came about. Like, I, I vaguely wondered if perhaps his parents had happened across volume one of an autobiography and been inspired by this story of a, a World War I, decorated World War I hero who reinvents himself as a, a respectable watercolourist and maybe spent the rest of their lives wondering what became of him after that. <laughs> who knows? If we ever find volume two, the mystery will be solved. Um, we, we did want to ask, uh, clearly the, the three of us at this table, um, Isabel, William and Andrew, had parents sorely lacking in imagination, but, but have you run across anywhere uh, people who struck you as having particularly inspiringly interesting names? I'm afraid not. The, Bra- the Brazilians have hands down. I come from a family where every firstborn son was called William, so we are really boring. <laughs> and I spent most of my life in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area where you were either called Mohammed if you were, or if you were really adventurous Abdullah or if you were a Shia Ali. So uh, I've not been anywhere where there's been uh, where, the, where people have encouraged them to, to uh, go off piste uh, with names, I'm afraid. Isabel? Well, I have met quite a few Lenins, but no Stalin. Um, and I did meet a young man in Cuba once who was called Elvis, and he couldn't understand why everybody smiled when he said his name because he didn't know who Elvis was. But the thing that I do come across is um, the Chinese, of course, take names terribly seriously because mm. they have meaning and, you know, they have to they have to carry this sort of good fortune. But when Chinese start to choose foreign names, they can go a bit off-piste sometimes with things that sound as though they're going to be okay. So you get, you know, things like lucky and that's fine. But I I was had to explain to a young woman who had called herself Algi that actually, <laughs> although it sounded pretty, it was green slime and she was quite distressed. So- the companies, I mean, companies, I remember Exxon, the story of Exxon, in which they had to try and find a name that didn't mean something awful in some other language. You know, that's why Exxon was chosen. It was it apparently didn't mean anything derogatory in any language, having <laughs> gone through all sorts of things that meant crap or <laughs> versions of it. <laughs> I, as a, a keen fan of American football as I am, I, I would, I mean, there's you, you could go all day on this, but I, I would like uh, to give a shout out to the St. Brown family. That is, of course, Equinemius St. Brown of the Green Bay Packers, his brother Amon Ra, St. Brown of the Detroit Lions, uh, and their younger brother Osiris, who regrettably was not drafted, despite being what I thought was a fairly handy-looking wide receiver while at Stanford. And a great god. Let's move along to another very interesting story. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, exporting a children's television show in the region seems a surprising pursuit for American lawmakers. Yet, that is exactly what happened, and television producer Natasha Lance Rogoff was tasked with making Sesame Street in Russia. Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Combs caught up with Natasha, whose new book, Muppets in Moscow, details her experience. I was first approached by Sesame Workshop, then called the Children's Television Workshop, in 1992 at a screening of a documentary film that I had just completed called Russia for Sale, The Rough Road to Capitalism. And this film, which aired on PBS television, which is our public TV station, essentially predicted the coup of 1991, which is when the Soviet Union collapsed. 
And I had been uh, embedding myself with conservative, fascists, communists, anti-capitalists for two years previously uh, who wanted to do anything to avoid the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, after this screening, two executives from Sesame Street came up to me and said, oh, excuse me, we, we really enjoyed watching your film. And do you think you can help us bring the Muppets to Moscow? And of course, I was kind of shocked, you know, because I have no children's television experience. And I asked them and I said, did you just watch this film? You know, because it's very dark and, you know, it's as far as can be from the Muppets. And, you know, I just didn't quite understand, you know, why me? And then they said, well, you know, we've been trying for a couple of years and uh, we have uh, support from the U.S. Congress. So at that point, then Senator Biden had spearheaded congressional support for a Russian version of Sesame Street. But before funding could be released, a Russian partner had to be found. So a Russian broadcaster. And Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit company, and they had been working with the Russian Ministry of Education. But, you know, they were, they were broke. I mean, at this point, uh, most of Soviet television, post-Soviet television for drama and entertainment was dark. The film studios were not producing. There just wasn't state funding for educational programming. And, you know, the prospect of doing this was so exciting. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any experience with children, but I thought, wow, this is a really challenging project. And you know, then when they, the executives explained that um, Sesame Street envisioned the Muppets as ambassadors of, of you know, that, that they could model idealistic values, freedom of expression, tolerance, and provide skills that would help children thrive in this, you know, budding new open society, then I was all in. I thought, this is really, this could have such a tremendous impact, and I want to be part of it. It's an incredible story, and as, as you said there, you kind of looked at it as such a challenge, and I think one thing that does really come across in the book is how many challenges had to be overcome with the production of, of this. I wanted to ask you, the goal of the project is described as finding this middle ground between Western liberal values that Sesame Street was really well known for kind of espousing, and then also fitting in with this post-Soviet culture and the spiritual values and the educational needs of, of children in Russia, as well as post-Soviet states at the time. And maybe you could just talk about the kind of specific challenges of overcoming those cultural differences and how you managed to, to square those in the end. Well, when you say, Sophie, you know, uh, spiritual values, that really captures Russian culture. And you know, it was both a very spiritual society, but also a very violent one. And, you know, some of the uh, initial challenges we had to deal with included our first uh, sponsors of the show. Russian sponsor was, you know, blown up in a, uh, a car bombing. 
and he survived what was badly burned. And then our two uh, broadcast partners, uh, one a great man who was trying to reform the Soviet television and, and create a free press in Russia. He was killed, uh, somebody uh, killed him after he was leaving the TV station. So, you know, there were already enormous challenges uh, related to the instability of the country politically and the violence. And on top of that, the cultural clashes that you're talking about really pitted, I would say, Sesame Street's progressive values against 300 years of Russian thought. And that entailed, you know, differences in uh, values and ideology around ideas of equality, you know, how much freedom should, should children be having in the TV show? How would you portray independent commerce in the show? I mean, there were, there were multiple clashes that had to do also with the Muppets, the design of the Muppets. That, that almost caused World War III. Finally, Natasha, the show eventually premieres. It has a long and successful run before it's finally stopped under Putin in 2010. In the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia's obviously been in the headlines throughout the past months. How do you look back on this period of time of introducing Sesame Street to Moscow and how do you feel about the impact the show had? You're so right about that, Sophie. The, you know, it's remarkable where we are today and where we were 30 years ago. I was just thinking about how, you know, 30 years ago, we were training Russian and Ukrainian artists and uh, puppeteers how to perform puppets at Sesame Street Studios in New York. And today, you know, I just read that Ukrainian fighters are being trained in America how to uh, operate Abrams tanks. So we are in a very different and heartbreaking place. But I also know, I mean, I've been back to Russia several times since making Ulitsa Sazam, and the show became a huge hit, uh, broadcast across the 11 time zones to millions of children on Russia's two largest TV uh, channels. And when I've gone back to uh, Moscow, because I've made films since then, and I meet people who I, I shyly ask them, you know, have you, do you know Ulitsa Sazam? And the reaction has always been, you know, it, just laughter. And, you know, sometimes people start singing the songs from the, from the show and they want to talk about who's their favorite Muppet. And the show had a huge impact uh, on an entire generation of people. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, and for my usual global countdown, where I look at the charts around the world, I chose a very interesting music market. It's India, a very exciting top five. I hope you enjoy. 
It's that time of the week again for Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco to join us in the studio for this week's edition of The Global Countdown. How are you doing today? Very good, Marcus, especially because of the country I chose today, because because after watching an excellent film called RRR, an Indian film, I was in love and I said, you know what, I should explore more uh, the Indian film industry and music industry. Such an important market as well. Have you booked your flights already? Well, maybe I will. I know, I know you like India as well, Marcus, so you might enjoy actually this top five. Quite unusual at times, actually. Uh, our number what do you f- mean by unusual? Well, I don't think we ever had some sort of uh, almost a religious and devotional track uh, here on the Global countdown but that's what happens at number five we'll hear a clip and then i'll explain why it's so spiritual this is gushan kumar with shri hanuman chalisa First of all, can you remind us of the name of this song again, please? Yes, so it's Shri Hanuman Chalisa. And I have to explain to our listeners that Hanuman is a Hindu god. I mean, I, I, I even have to say sorry for, you know, for all the ones, for the believers, because it, 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 there was a long story, actually, about uh, the god. Next time I'll do a better research for you, Marcus. But I also found out that this song in particular, there's, been, there's many versions of this track, but this one have more than 2 billion views on YouTube. That's impressive. I think it's the most watched uh, Indian uh, video on YouTube ever uh, and, and probably is a song that people keep coming back to. That's why it's a number five as well. It's it's kind of a nice, gentle start. Are we getting any Benjamin Ingrosser remixes anytime soon? For well, I have a feeling that probably there are already a few remixes of that. Uh, but, you know, beautiful, beautiful track there. And number five. You said it was spiritual, by the way. Can you tell us more about that, that aspect? Well, what, what are the lyrics saying? It is a bit, you know, chanting to the to the Hanuman, the, this Hindu god. Uh, so, you know, it's it's about love, it's about family, it's it's just mm. the beautiful feelings of life. I've got a feeling number four is going to be different. It is different. And, you know, we're looking at India, Marcus, and the music industry and the film industry in India, they are very much intertwined. The majority of tracks, they're usually part of a soundtrack of a film. And I think that's brilliant. So there's a new film coming out called Patan. I think it's out uh, this weekend uh, in India and, and internationally as well. It's about an ex-army man turned undercover agent, big budget. And when, it, when I talk about big budget, you can see that in the soundtrack as well. And, you know, Indian films are like that, you know, even even if it's a serious action film, there will be kind of a dance scene, there will be, you know, I think music is much more present. You wouldn't see that in a Christopher Nolan film, which I find actually quite boring, the Christopher Nolan films. But um, shall we have a listen? This is a part of the soundtrack of this film. Uh, it's a great pop song. It's by Vishal and Shaikar, performed by Arijit Singh and Sukriti Kakar with uh, Jun Jo Patan. <laughs> Wow. 
You know what, India India is going to be the biggest country in terms of population quite soon. Do you think they're going to have more influence over the music we listen to in the future? Is this something that is to come? Absolutely. We are seeing this already with films. Even here in London, where we live, Marcus, there are quite a few cinemas dedicated uh, to show films like this. So I have even this film, Patan, I'm sure it will do well at the box office this weekend uh, here in the UK. I'm dying to see it because what I like it, the the films, they don't take themselves so seriously, you know. Yes, there are explosions, there's helicopter rides, but there's people dancing by the pool with sexy bikinis as well. It's a mixture of that. And I mentioned... I don't think the nudity is that big a thing in Indian film industry. Well, well, well. You're kind of right, but I think things are changing. And number three is a great example of that. It's still part of the soundtrack of Patan. And I have to say, it is... It is set in a pool party in a beautiful location. I couldn't really identify. It is a bit sexy, Marcus, actually. So I think they are pushing the barriers. I'm sure. What is your definition of a bit sexy? Well, bikinis, you know, even the beginning of this song, it's in Spanish. It's like, come to la fiesta, you know. So there is this kind of vavavum vibes if I may say but uh, now I understand what you're talking about of course it's not something that you would see you know in Brazil it's still slow steps but it is sexy let's have a listen it's also Vishal and Shikar and the song is called Besharan Rang which means shameless color And I will just read one of the lyrics, Marcus. The moment I feel a wave of modesty, I throw it to the wind. I mean, it's sexy. That's deep. Yes. <laughs> but I Shall think... we continue with what's number two? Number two, yeah. That's, uh, I believe it's not a soundtrack of a film, uh, but it's a song by Sandeep uh, Surila and Kamal Shaudai. It's called Kaliya Murad. It's, it, it's a different kind of genre of music in India. It's, it's, it's Haryanvi. So it's quite energetic. Lots of vocoder in there. Shall we have a listen? <laughs> I'm into it, Marcus. I'm very much into it. I definitely will explore more music, the, the music industry. I also in like India. the creative use of auto tune in that. Track. Oh yes, I mean it's very uh, creative, and the video is kind of funny as well. It's about husband and wife. I think they're fighting, but it's all kind of humorous uh, in a way. So it, it, it's nice. Do you think number one? The song in India has deserved its place. It, it does deserve. And for me, it's more of a conventional track as well. And, and, and he's a singer. His name is King. Uh, he's actually coming to the UK to play at the Wireless Festival. So he's a rapper as well. That's something quite current. He's quite uh, well known among, uh, among young people in India as well. I think that this track is something that could definitely work uh, outside India as well. It's a very nice track by King. It's called Man Mary Jan, which means Believe Me, Sweetheart. Let's have a listen. That 
was a pleasant song. A very pleasant song. And, you know, as our producer Carlotta actually mentioned to us, it does sound a little bit like mm -hmm. reggaeton. So maybe it's interesting because he does use elements of Indian traditional music, but a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of reggaeton perhaps as well. And there's even an English version of this track, not performed by King, but uh, by another singer, which is also doing very well. So, yes, you're right, Marcus. Perhaps some of the music are going to be in other countries more and more. I now understand your fascination with Indian music scene. I have to say that this was a particularly interesting top five. Just one final question relating to a song we discussed earlier. Do you ever have this moment when you feel a wave of modesty approaching? And if so, what is your way of tackling that? <laughs> you know what? how I tackled? I throw it to the wind. Monaco's Fernando Augusto there. Thank you very much. I'm loving this edition of The Curator, very cultural, a lot of different stories from around the world. And now we're heading to Bangkok. The Bangkok Art Biennale, which opened in October, is kicking off its final month with a special lecture from renowned performance artist Marina Abramovic, who also exhibited nine major video works related to the Biennale's theme, Chaos and Calm. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant spoke with Abramovich and the Biennale's artistic director, Apinan Poshinanda, to hear more. Marina Abramovich is chaos and calm. You know, I know her for 30 years. So, so in this way, whatever she chooses or whether we show, there's this beautiful dilemma and contradiction within herself and her works. So in this way, there's, there's her body, her work, and the way she talks, the way she creates this, this aura and how people react to her is in itself an amazing way of presenting. But I'm not saying that chaos calm is totally binary opposites. I'm saying that chaos calm can be together and we, we have to blend this together. And I think uh, her works that she mentioned, the nine videos, actually tell us a lot about herself, her works over the past 30 years, but also about uh, the ways of how performance art developed. You, you can see the art in her age, in her group, you know, those who began with performance, they move on to other things, to sculpture, to more commodified artworks. But Marina Bravmich has stuck to her roots, uh, her, how she has used performance as a way to be herself and, and to use her stamina and endurance to show that performance art can can be very much you know important part of contemporary art world yeah my work is full of contradictions i have the work with you know who is in in a certain way in really pushing the the body limits and deal with the aggression and it deal with energy and another work was very meditative very calm so i look what i done in the past and i choose the work who actually express these two opposites calm and chaos is two opposites and it's so interesting that uh, dr apinan actually chose this the team for the biennale because bangkok is such a perfect example of the calm and chaos because in this all chaotic situation of the traffic of the air pollution of the you know the, the develop very fast development with enormous uh, floods of tourism and the mess we can experience every day, you know, is a sound pollution, is a visual pollution, is it's all consumption pollution. You also can go in the total quiet places where you actually see people meditating and be in a, in a temple area and oblivion of what all is happening outside. So this is so fascinating to me. 
And you also created new work in Thailand itself, right? Could you talk about that a bit? Oh my God! I, I first time I came to Thailand, it was uh, already in uh, eight in eighty three. And uh, this was the first time I actually arrived. And I arrived at that time with the Belgium crew, working with uh, Michel Laub, another artist from Belgium, and Mondo Zanolini. And we was asked to actually create something inspired uh, by uh, by Thailand. And at that time, I worked with the uh, Ulai, which we, you know, produced for 12 years' work together. So we decided to go to Ayutthaya. And the Utah, name of Utah, this was all the capital of Thailand. It was called City of Angels. So this is the name of the video that we made first in Thailand. And in this video, it was really quite revolutionary for us because it's the first time that we actually didn't perform in this video. We decided to just direct it. And we wanted to work only with the Thai people who had never been in the front of the camera. And conditional the shooting was to do only in the morning with sunrise and only in the evening with sunset so with the natural light so we arrive in Ayutthaya and we start casting people we went to the market and a cask very old man and very old woman who 40 years selling vegetables on the market we went to see two young boys you know working with the wood and the, we asked also the monk to participate in this project Tibetan you know the, the Buddhist monk and then the, actually we found the man who was begging for food on the street and we asked him to also be in the shot and this was such an incredible interesting experience doing this work and this is how actually my relation to thailand became stronger and stronger can you tell us what you plan to discuss in your talk tomorrow the topic of the talk is the long durational artwork and my institute and uh, also the part is going to be participation of the public in the talk you know how i actually demonstrate what means abramovich method for art and for general audience and uh, it's it's really with lots of visual material and uh, not boring to for sure and really i wanted to know even if the person who come to listen to this talk and never know anything about performance art after two hours and 15 minutes of the discussion and look at the material and me being accessible to any question to answer, they will go with the idea what performance art is and why this kind of form of art is important today, especially. It sounds kind of interesting because it sounds like, you know, with the interactive audience, in a way, the lecture is also like a small piece of performance art. You know, the one of the biggest lectures I, I made recently, just end of the last year, was in uh, Lithuania and in Kaunas, which uh, they announced on the you know web that people apply for the lecture. And uh, actually, the 6,000 people apply. So the only place that the lecture could be done, it was in basketball stadium. And this was probably the biggest lecture I've done in my life. And this is which entire public participate. This was something that I actually never forget. Why people come from completely different types of life. They're not just artists, but just the normal people. You know, there they was interesting what, you know, performance work is. So I think that, that the, the performance art on the emotional level can reach so much more people than very, that the art who, who is more static and doesn't have this live element. You are listening to The Curator, and we are back. Staying in Asia, James Chambers ponders the next steps for Taiwan's parliament building, a center for the island's strong democracy, famous for its verbal and occasionally physical bus stops. 
Taiwan's national parliament, which is known as the Legislative Yuan, is housed inside a former high school in the capital city, Taipei. The modest building barely warrants a photo opportunity, but it's a fitting playground for the rough and tumble of Taiwanese politics. Until rising tensions between the US and China catapulted Taiwan into the global news, the island tended to make the headlines for its standout pride festival and the tendency of its elected lawmakers to throw punches, chairs, and even pig's guts on the floor of the debating chamber. A few months before the former US Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, addressed the parliament last year, lawmakers were hurling water bottles and fake money at each other. Lo Chur Cheng is a sitting MP for the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, and he's also a veteran of several dust-ups with the opposition Kuomintang. Like many of his peers, Lo was born before democracy arrived in Taiwan in the 1990s. According to the former academic, fights in the legislative yuan are a byproduct of a political system that prohibits filibustering, forcing the opposition to find other ways of holding up the passage of government bills. Speaking to me from his parliamentary office next door to the chamber, he described Taiwan as a young democracy. He also assured me that Taiwan's scrappy political opponents play nice afterwards, and that there are unlikely to be any more sensitive bills to fight over this year ahead of the next general election in 2024. But one thing that lawmakers can agree on is the need for a new parliament. The current building, parts of which were built by the Japanese during the colonial era, was only ever meant to be a temporary home. When the former president, Chiang Kai-shek, retreated to the island with his troops after losing to Mao Zedong's communists in the civil war, he fully intended to avenge his defeat one day and move his Kuomintang government back to the mainland. As that dream faded, Taiwan's lawmakers stayed where they were, and over time, democracy flourished on the island, transforming what was once a rubber stamp parliament akin to what exists in Beijing to a modern-day temple of democracy, a rare one in the region. These days, Taiwan is ranked as one of the world's top 10 democracies, and a trip to Taipei has become a hot destination for political pilgrims. With the parliament likely to host more and more political delegations in the future, the need for a new building with more room and more grandeur has gained even greater urgency. During an exhibition of possible designs for the new parliament held in Taipei last year, the Speaker of the Legislative Yuan emphasized the need for architecture that symbolizes Taiwanese identity and sovereignty on the international stage, citing as examples to emulate the Capitol Building in Washington and the UK's Palace of Westminster. The main sticking points are finding a suitable location for the new national parliament and convincing voters to pay for the construction of these new digs, a symbol, if ever there was one, of a mature democracy in action. Time now to head to Lisbon. We reflect on exhibitions still open to the public as part of the city's recent architecture triennale. Terra is about a planet that we live for. We didn't translate to English because in Portuguese it's a very deep word. So it's the planet that we inhabit, is the, the, the space of belonging 
the place of belonging, is the place that we oversee from a certain distance when we are at the water or the sea, is a place also that we build and we create, is a matter, is a terra. So having these different and even these different uh, scales, we decide to have the curators working with us. It was an open call even for us to choose the curators. We look in a very open uh, opportunity. We contact people all over the world, including United Nations, and the curators came to us. We also mentioned to Trianal it was very important that we could have them working as a team. In other words, not only the exhibitions, the other curators will be aware of what everybody's doing, but they also have the ability of intertwining the topics between them. We also asked them if they would accept, and that would also be an opportunity for us to have the universities Instead of having a separate university exhibition, we would like them to include the universities in each of their exhibition. Can I ask you, just out of all these different conversations that were happening separately, but also simultaneously, as you're saying, what kind of dialogues uh, surprised you the most? We had to present these four topics with a sense of clarity so that they could further develop it. We've always compared this to a similar uh, like race where you just run the, the first 100 meters and someone else will run the, the rest 300 meters. So on one hand, ideas for these exhibitions had to be very clear. What was the intent? What were the questions that we wanted to be addressed in each of these exhibitions? But on the other hand, we were working with people who had done already a lot of work, a lot of research. They had a sense of expertise in these areas. So we also realized that uh, from this point onwards, this is not going to be my exhibition curated, uh, edited by someone else. This will be their exhibition as well. So it was with that sense of openness that um, a lot of these conversations happened. An interesting challenge, as Christina pointed out, was the integration of the universities. We wanted the universities to be part of these conversations because obviously we've been teaching architecture for many, many years. One of the things we were very concerned about is this journal being an opportunity for people to be engaged uh, and see how can we do something. And Christina always mentioned that this was more of a goal for action. And for us, this is for the future generation. So we felt that by integrating the universities into these many exhibitions, we are opening these conversations to young generations to understand that no matter how big or small the project is, like the bench that is part of the um, one of the exhibitions in the National Museum of Contemporary Art, it's such a bench. It creates a place where you belong, where people sit and have a conversation. And it is an amazing opportunity that is very transformative in terms of its societal and community implications. So can, can you give me of. some other examples? I loved hearing about this bench of, of pieces and, and debates that were opened up and how they relate to, to where we are with, uh, with architecture today, how these are relevant in the debate mm. today. For example, materials, the idea of concrete. We are now understanding that concrete could be something that we learn a lot from him and even use it back by research that in the exhibitions of cycles was teaching us about recovering pieces of concrete and rebuild new buildings with them. 
this is the moment for us to do something. No matter what is the scale of your office, no matter what is the, the intent of the community, as long as you put a small seed and let that seed grow. A lot of triennales and biennales are focusing very large buildings. We were focusing on the small thing that can actually make a difference. And because it's the Triennale in Lisbon specifically, obviously, how, how does Portugal or Lisbon mm. feature in this conversation? First of all, let me tell you, I like sometimes to say that Jorge Luis Borges would say that is in the periphery, that the eyes are more open and willing to bring a change. And we are at the periphery of a core. So we can look at the core because we belong to Europe, but we also have this energy to be in the periphery and to have the eyes kind of a little bit outsiders to actually respond to that core. Portugal was always that country. Even when we tried to bring things to the world, bad and good, I hope, more the goods than the bads, but there are also bads to remember, but we always have that vision of the periphery. And as we like to do every week, we have a lovely recipe from you. And this time is from chef Theo Clench. It's a delicious midweek pasta dish. I'm uh, Theo Clench. I'm executive chef of Sycene Restaurant. It's a small 20-cover fine-dining restaurant based in Blue Mountain School in Shoreditch in London. And the dish I'm going to run through with you today is a simple crab linguine, which is one of my favourite things to eat on my days off at home. So I think the best way for this recipe is to go to your local fishmonger. Crabs can be quite intimidating, so you can always just go for the, the pit white crab meat, which is quick and easy and it's just as delicious. So I'll start off by dicing up some garlic and chilli, just frying it off gently in quite a little bit of olive oil. And once that's all nice and soft, a bit of splash of white wine, just reduce that down a little bit once it starts to reduce. Um, so at this time, you should probably have your pasta cooking. So some linguine, salted water, boiling away in the background. Add your pits, white crab meat to this. As your, as your pasta is coming to the al dente stage, scoop a little bit of pasta water out into the, the crab, white wine, chilli mix. Um, bring that down slightly, strain your pasta off, let it steam dry for a second, chuck it all into the pan together. Nice big squeeze of lemon juice, um, maybe grate some lemon zest in there as well. You'll see the starch of the pasta and the pasta water will thicken the dish slightly just so everything starts to coat the pasta, keep moving it around. Uh, nice pinch of salt, crack of black pepper, big handful of chives at the end. And, and that's it. It's nice and simple, little crab linguine. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>